From South Carolina Public Radio, this is the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on May 5th, 2023 from South Carolina Public Radio Studios here in Columbia. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. Now, I have a last-ditch plea for y'all to come out and see us at the South Carolina Public Radio Open House here at SCETV today. If you're listening today, Saturday, May 6th, it's from 5 to 7 p.m. We'll have food, swag, there will even be beer for purchase. We'll also have the second live lead taping of the year beginning around 7.15, featuring AP reporters and friends of the pod Meg Kennard talking about the 2024 campaign trail and Jeffrey Collins, who will recap the legislative session with just three days to go. Find more details and RSVP at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. Now, due to some unforeseen circumstances, we're changing up today's podcast and bringing you my full sit-down interview with Nikki Haley, the state's former governor and U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, turned 2024 Republican presidential candidate. I had a wide-ranging interview with Haley on everything from abortion and immigration to the debt ceiling limit, and Senator Tim Scott's expected entry into the 2024 race later this month. Without further ado, here is my interview with Haley, and I start off by asking her about how the first three months on the campaign trail has treated her so far. First of all, it's a great day in South Carolina. It's great to be home. It's been great. I mean, you know, this is about touching as many hands as you can. This is about letting them know that I've been a two-term governor that took a double-digit unemployment state and turned it into an economic powerhouse, that I was at the U.N. and I didn't deal with one country but 193 and took the kick-me sign off of our back. So it's not about what I say. It's about what I've done and what we think we can do going forward. And, you know, whether it's Iowa, whether it's New Hampshire, whether it's being back in South Carolina, it's good. It's, it's making sure that we are and their support. And we're going to work hard to do that. You've been making a lot of waves with your call for a mental competency test for politicians over 75. Uh, you've reiterated this call this week with the Fox News op-ed. Uh, this would include former President Donald Trump, President Joe Biden, uh, and other folks. Should this be for all politicians or why just over 75? No, I would be happy if it's 50 and above. I think everybody needs to know whoever they send in office They need to be at the top of their game. These are people deciding our national security. These are people deciding our children's economic future. This isn't about a party or a person. Mm -hmm. This is about the fact that you should be able to take a simple mental competency test without question. I mean, you look at Biden recently. He needed to have a child tell him what country he was in the week before. He didn't know how many grandchildren he had. You look at Dianne Feinstein. Like, she's 89 years old. She's missed office the last two months. At some point, people deserve to know whether their elected officials can handle the job or not. Mm -hmm. That's being transparent. Well, how do you get around the Constitution on this? Because it's a requirement. (laughs) No, I I think what you do is basically when you file to run for office, you should submit a mental competency test from your doctor. It's very simple to do. These aren't drawn out tests. This is like naming words that all start with the same letter. This is like what city you're in, what town, you know, you were at yesterday, what year it is. These Mm -hmm. are basic things. People should want to do this if they're going to run for office. Have you done one? I'm happy to do one. Because Wordle's hard enough for me every day. (laughs) I mean, look, I'm happy to do one. And I think any elected official that has a problem with it Mm -hmm. says more about them than it does about the tests themselves. Governor, you're uh, taking a lot of heat for saying this about Joe Biden. If you vote for Joe Biden, you're really... You really are counting on a President Harris, talking about Vice President Kamala Harris, because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not something that I think is likely. Do you stand by that? Do you think that's a little harsh? Well, first of all, people thought that I said he was going to die. That's not what I was saying. I was saying he wasn't going to finish out his term. Look, I'm saying what everybody's thinking. I've always spoken hard truths. That's a reality. You look at the decline he's had just since he's been president. 
do you really think he's going to make it to finish that second term? He's not. Mm -hmm. And so we really are looking at a President Harris. That's just a fact. Anybody that disputes that is not dealing with reality. So you'd like to see mental competency tests as a requirement. What about primary debates? Do you think that should be, uh, you know, if candidates meet certain polling qualifications that they should be on the debate stage? Well, I think that's for the parties to decide. The RNC has always decided the rules. The DNC's already decided, the, always decided the rules. I mean, whatever they are, I look forward to being on the debate stage and letting people see um, who we are, what we're made of, and, and what we're ready to do. But do you think people should be hearing from everyone who's concerned this high office? I think everybody that runs for office should want to be on the debate stage. They should want to earn the right and support of the American people. And the best way to do that is to see somebody on a debate stage. So Senator Tim Scott, who you appointed to fill Senator Jim DeMint's seat in 2012, is set to jump in the presidential race in uh, May 22nd. How does a Tim Scott candidacy affect a Nikki Haley candidacy? I mean, it, welcome to the race. You know, there's going to be people in there. I think at the end of the day, people are going to look at what someone has done and what they think they're capable of doing. And so I think you'll have to make that case to the American people as well. Have you spoken with him at all? Have you talked to him? He goes friendly. How do you describe your relationship? I have not heard from him. Mm -hmm. You can reach out to him and say welcome to the race when he jumps in? No, I mean, I think that, look, he has every right to run. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we wish him well, just, you know, like we wish everybody else well. But at the end of the day, you know, it is. It's about showing are you capable to run the country in a way that's going to get our economic policy back on track, that's going to deal with foreign policy issues, and make sure that we make America strong and proud again. I'm determined to do that. I'm not worried about anybody else in the race. I'm just focused on me and my communication with the American people. Mm -hmm. I heard your sub speech five times times between your announcement at Charleston on February 15th and then your swing through New Hampshire and Iowa over that next week. And then I also heard Senator Tim Scott give a speech at Drake University. Uh, there are a lot of similarities between the both of you from your narratives, your experiences and your vision for America. So how do you stand out from someone like Senator Scott? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I was a two term governor that that took a double digit unemployment state and turned it into an economic powerhouse. I didn't deal with one country. I dealt with 193. It's the experience that you have. But more importantly, it's the results. Look at what we did when I was governor of South Carolina. Not only did we put jobs in every county, we moved 35,000 people from welfare to work. We put um, systems in place in our prisons so that we trained inmates. So now we have the lowest recidivism rate in the country. We became the beast of the Southeast. When I left South Carolina, we were the most patriotic state, the friendliest state in the country. We were named the number two state in the country people were moving to. We passed voter ID. We made sure that um, we passed the toughest illegal immigration law in the country. I mean, mm -hmm. I think my record speaks for itself. The South Carolinians were very good to me and we're looking forward to showing our record and what we can do to the American people. So I know it's early still, but South Carolina point shows you in a dead heat against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for second place. You're both still trailing former President Trump. Uh, this Winthrop poll shows Trump at 41 percent, DeSantis at 20, mm -hmm. and you at 18 percent. So right within that margin of error, Senator Scott's at 7 percent. What do those numbers tell you at this point? How do you break through where you are at this point? They don't say anything. You can look at any presidential race, and it's a fact. The polls you see today will not be the polls you see a year from now. We are the only candidate right now that are really going to Iowa, New Hampshire and doing the hand-to-hand -hand combat, making sure we do full town halls, answering any questions they have. Um, they want to see you multiple times. You can't do a rally and then leave. They mm -hmm. want to make sure you earn it, just like South Carolinians want to see that you earn it. And so we're not taking any shortcuts. We're doing it the hard way. No one will outwork me, um, but we're going to make sure that people understand why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because 
my parents moved here 50 years ago to an America that was strong and proud. Mm -hmm. I want them to know they made the right decision. I'm doing this for Michael and his military brothers and sisters. They need to know their sacrifice mattered, that we do love our country. I'm doing this for my daughter because she and her husband, she just got married. I see how hard it was for them to buy a home. And on top of that, I raised her to have a good credit rating and mm -hmm. now she's getting hit for that too. I'm doing this for my son because I see him writing papers of things he doesn't believe in just to get an A. That's not us. And when 78% of Americans think their kids won't have as good of a life as they did, I don't trust anybody else to fix it. It's time for us to get to work and, and make people proud again. Well, and similar along those lines, a CBS News poll of likely GOP voters found that voters prefer a candidate who challenges woke ideas, opposes any gun restrictions, says Trump won 2020 and makes liberals angry. Are you that candidate? Do you believe that? I think I'm the new generational candidate that's going to get all the distractions out and start focusing on results. People need to know government is there to serve the people, not the other way around. Government's gotten too bloated. The spending has gotten too much. We feel it in our wallets. Why is Congress the only group that doesn't balance a budget when everybody else does? Why don't we have term limits? Why aren't we energy independent? Why don't we have a strong military? There's so many things we need to get to work. All of these distractions are killing us. We've got to get back on track for the sake of our kids. Do you think talking about the 2020 election as being stolen is a distraction? Right now it's in the past. Let's talk about the future. You know, whether that comes up again and again, it's not doing any of us any favors moving forward. Mm -hmm. And when America is distracted, the world is less safe. And we're seeing that play out right now. Governor, uh, we're talking about abortion being a big issue right now, of course. Uh, it's legal up to 22 weeks in South Carolina. That uh, They rarely happen after 15 weeks in our state, but should it be more restrictive than that, in your opinion? I think that what I'm very happy about is that once Roe was overturned, it took it from unelected justices and it put it back in the hands of the people. Now we're seeing that consensus play out in multiple states, and we'll see it play out at the federal level, what I will tell you, I'm strongly pro-life, not because the party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted. I had trouble, you know, having both of my children. I would love it if every state was pro-life, but they haven't been. Some have erred on the side of being more pro-abortion. I wish that wasn't the case. Some have erred on the side of being more pro-life. I love that. But we're allowing the people to decide, and I think that's what's most important. But there's not a consensus in South Carolina right now. It seems like there's a near-total abortion ban bill that can't get through the Senate, and there's a Senate-approved six-week abortion ban bill that's in the House. What would your message be to the House right now if you were still I mean, governor? That's democracy. Mm -hmm. That's democracy. That's what I love, is finally it's the people's voices and their representatives going and debating out what's in in the best interest of South Carolina. That's exactly what should be happening. But in is the a six-week six week ban better than nothing at all at this point? You know, it's not for us to sit there and, and point on which weeks are better. Mm -hmm. You know, this played out, Gavin, when you know when we moved to bring the Confederate flag down. The reason that we were able to get two-thirds vote of the House, two-thirds vote of the Senate, is because we didn't judge either side. Mm -hmm. We brought out the best in people and got them to see a way forward. That's the key is don't start judging people on what weeks they're for or what exemptions they're for. Why don't we talk about how do we save as many babies as possible and support as many moms in the process? That should be the overall goal, and consensus should be the way we get there. When you talk about the Confederate flag, is that something you, you rarely talk about on the campaign trail or how often do you feel like you need to bring that up? And is that something you, you usually do just to talk about unity or moving things forward? I mean, how do you, how do you gauge when to bring that story it up? It was painful. 
It was painful. It was painful for me. It was painful for our state. It's, it's, you know, I'm so proud of how the people of South Carolina stood up and showed the world what strength and grace look like. Um, but, you know, it was a sad moment. And I think so I'm very respectful about when I talk about it and how I talk about it, because I know the pain that it caused. But mm -hmm. I also know that we didn't, you know, this was on the heels of Ferguson. We didn't have riots and protests. We had vigils and hugs. How amazing is that? And so I don't want to ever trivialize it. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure people remember the good in it and, and not sit there and politicize what happened and the bad of it. And obviously that came after the horrific massacre at Mother Manuel Amy Church. But before that, you always said, you know, no CEO had ever talked to you about bringing the flag down. But talk about CEOs. We're looking at the fallout from Disney, the Don't Say Gay law in Florida. You said, you know, if Disney wants to relocate to South Carolina, they can do so. How do you how do you mesh that with folks saying, well, if it's harmful for Florida, why would it be beneficial for South Carolina? So first of all, South Carolina is not an anti-woke state. I mean, we know that. We hopefully never will be. But this is the fact that, look, it started with the don't say gay bill, right? Basically where they said that you sh couldn't talk about gender before the third grade. Mm -hmm. I have been public to say, I don't think that went far enough. I don't think the role of government bureaucrats in schools should be telling kids about gender. That's something for parents to have that conversation with them on. So if that was the case of what started it, you know, here you've had Disney who went and criticized the governor for it. The governor took $50,000 in contributions from Disney prior to that. The governor went and passed the largest, like, benefits, state benefits for a corporation in Florida history before that. And suddenly when they go and criticize the governor, he wants to waste taxpayer dollars getting in a lawsuit. Why not sit in a room and hash it out? I had worked with all of our business leaders as partners because I knew if you gave a person a job, you took care of families. If we had, I had business leaders criticize me. Mm -hmm. I picked up the phone and I called them. I got in a room. I didn't sit there and have taxpayer dollars for lawsuits. I think that's what needs to happen when this goes forward. And I think once, you know, the governor talks to the executives and they come to terms with things, I think things will be better. But look, that is, you know, $70,000, 70,000 jobs and billions of dollars. I've always sold South Carolina. <laughs> so, you know, if, if a company wants to come to South Carolina, we'll take them. So you think DeSantis really bungled this up pretty good? I think he can do better. I mean, I think that this is one of those situations where don't take it personally. Instead, do what's in the best interest of Floridians and make sure that one, best use of taxpayer dollars. Two, make sure that you work it out with the executives on what legislation passes and what it means. And don't take Take it personally and, and get into lawsuits. That doesn't want nobody wins with that. So would you call it a business like BMW or Boeing if they had some sort of um, advocacy for similar policies? I mean, that happened. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think I remember many of our tire companies, they criticized me because I wouldn't raise taxes on gas. And, you know, but I picked up the phone and I called them mm -hmm. and they had the right to say what they thought. That's freedom of speech and freedom to do what they want. I had the right to defend the fact that I didn't think we needed to raise taxes in this state. And we talked it out. We didn't play it out in lawsuits. Let's talk about the debt for a minute. Or I should say, sorry, immigration. Department of Homeland Security has requested 1,500 troops down to the border to support its mission down there. Uh, this is ex uh, because of the expected surge from the Title 42 being repealed. You've been down to the border. What needs to be done to secure it? And how do you make the policy reforms necessary? if Congress is so divided. You know, I didn't go show up and do a picture and leave. I went along 400 miles of that border. And Gavin, what I saw is immoral. 
I mean, the idea that we get up in the morning and you drink your coffee and you turn on the news, those ranchers get up in the morning, they get their coffee and they see if anyone died crossing that fence. They see if there were any kids that were left behind. I spoke with the sheriffs and they said that they, they get before 7 a.m., they rally up illegal immigrants, take them to Border Patrol, Border Patrol documents them and releases them for two to three years before their court date. I talked to Border Patrol and they said, you know what our jobs are? We're glorified babysitters. They don't let us do our job. This is a national security threat. When I was governor, we passed one of the toughest illegal immigration laws in the country. We did a mandatory e-verify that said no business could hire anyone here illegally. We need to do that across the country. We need to defund sanctuary cities. Mm -hmm. We need to fire the 87,000 IRS agents and hire 25,000 Border Patrol and ICE agents and put them on the ground. We need to make sure we go back to remain in Mexico because no one wants to remain in Mexico. And we need to keep Title 42. And more than that, instead of catch and release, we need to catch and deport. That's how we will go and stop the flow of illegal immigration. When you talk about closing the borders too, what does that entail? I mean, does that mean curtailing the flow of commerce, curtailing legal immigration? asylum, how do, you, how do you close the border? Two different issues. So illegal immigration, you deal with it because we're a country of laws. The second you stop being a country of laws, you give up everything this country was founded on. Legal immigration, we need to make sure we take the bureaucracy out of it. You vet people and you approve them quickly or you deny them quickly, but we don't do it based on quotas and numbers. We do it based on merit. What do we need in our country that will make our economy stronger? What do we need that will improve us? When we start looking at legal immigration in terms of merit, that's when we'll actually become a stronger and better country. You talk about the economy, we're wrapping up here in a moment, but the debt ceiling debate is obviously one that everyone's paying attention to because we're gonna reach the debt ceiling uh, on June 1st, apparently. So uh, markets are getting edgy. Previous debt ceiling fights have hurt the economy. Where do you stand? Should they bring negotiations over this? Should it just be a clean bill? Where do you stand on that? First, let's look at how we got there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just Biden that did that. Our Republicans did that to us, too. The spending is out of control. The idea that, that we passed a $2.2 trillion COVID stimulus bill and Congress passed that 419 to 6 in the House, 96 to 0 in the Senate. It expanded welfare, 90 million people on Medicaid, 42 million Americans on food stamps. And then they double down and start opening up, Republicans opened up earmarks again. You know, seven and a half million for horse racing in Arizona, 30 million for an honors college in Vermont. Stop the spending, stop the borrowing, and let's get our fiscal house in order. I don't think they need to allow, you know, the debt limit to expire, but I do think that they need to put measures in place that are actually gonna pay down the debt and reduce the spending. What about the House Republican plan cutting $4.5 trillion in cuts? That's about 22%. Uh, reduction in domestic spending. Is that the way to go about this now or is that something that happens later after we make sure we don't default? I mean, I think it's a start. We need to put measures in place that not only show what we're going to cut in terms of the frivolous spending that we have, but also how are we going to reduce the debt? Our kids are not going to forgive us for this if we don't fix the economy. Really, Just wrapping up here, uh, we talk, you're really big on transparency, obviously, mm -hmm. right? Because of getting on the record votes in the House when you're in the State House, um, And you talk about that on the campaign trail a good bit too. So should there be greater oversight when it comes to the U.S. Supreme Court? We're talking about these folks that are not elected, but they hold a lot of power and there's been a lot of controversy over some recent reporting involving some of the justices. How do you see that playing out? Should there be stronger ethical guidelines? Uh, should Congress have oversight? Transparency cures all things. You know, I made our budgets transparent. I, you know, made all of our agencies go online so that taxpayers could see them. I think everybody that represents the American people in any way whatsoever should be as transparent as possible. I think the American people deserve that.
Last question, is there any federal agency that you would cut? I know some presidential candidates have proposed that before, but anything that comes to mind for you? I would send a team into every single agency and tell them to cut regulations, cut bureaucracy, take out any people that are problems in there, and make sure that we go back to where people who work in agencies can only serve five years in one job. They have to rotate into other jobs. We can't have any fiefdoms or power structures there. I did that in South Carolina. We gutted some of our agencies. We propped up the others. We've got to go in and really fix this. Instead of politicizing agencies, they need to start working for the American people again. Former Governor Nikki Haley, thank you so much. We'll see you on the trail. Thank you. Great to see you. That was former governor turned Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley talking to me on This Week in South Carolina. Our interview was recorded at SCETV on Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. And that's our show for today, folks. Thanks for listening to the pod. You can always show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a voicemail at 803-563-7169. We love hearing from you guys, so give us a shout. And you can stay up to date with the latest news on scetv.org and southcarolinapublicradio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina.